0: Everyday Everest, a podcast inspired by everyday people conquering an Everest all their own. I'm Reese D'Angelo. On today's episode, I speak with Dr. Alyssa Nadalny, a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner and former critical care nurse. Alyssa, thanks for being here with me.
1: Thanks for having me, Reese. So good to see you.
0: Before we get too deep in the weeds here, tell me a little bit about what you do as an APN. What does that mean? who are your patients, all of that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So as a psych NP, um, my role is to do psych evaluations, a lot of med management. And even more than that, I think it's just to support, educate, and advocate for my psychiatric patients. And currently I am seeing all ages, children, adolescents, young, middle, and older adults Um, I see an array of different type of psychiatric conditions from like anxiety, depression, ADHD, bipolar, schizophrenia, and even borderline personality disorder and other personality disorders.
0: It sounds like you have a unique perspective on people's resilience and growth mindset, overcoming great challenges. Given the nature of your work, you've probably seen a lot of people at their darkest times. You've seen folks trudge through and come out better for it on the other side. And you've also probably, unfortunately, seen those who haven't yet been able to do that. Can you talk a little bit about what growth mindset means to you and how you've seen it play out in your work?
1: So I think growth mindset professionally is just, you know, being a lifelong student in the field that I'm in. Um, I don't think that you ever arrive or know everything there is to know about psychiatry and mental health. And it's an evolving field. There's so many exciting new treatment modalities that are coming up in the next few years. And I feel like I'm really excited to be a part of this field. And so I think just not staying stagnant in what you know, and always trying to, because the more information that you know and can learn and give the best evidence-based practice care It empowers me to be a better practitioner, but it also helps me to educate my patients and help them grow in a lot of ways. Because when I find that I educate my patients, it helps them to understand themselves. And when they can understand themselves, they can more easily explain to friends and family what's going on with them. And it helps to break down stigma a lot too. Also having the mindset that I don't know everything. I've really been enjoying... Just learning more about the world around me and different perspectives and not staying stuck in a certain mindset or beliefs and just always evolving and adapting and learning new things about myself and the world around me.
0: That capacity for lifelong learning might be part of what you believe can make someone resilient.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. In psychiatry, we talk about resiliency factors. And so you can go into like, you know, the way you were raised, your educational level, all these other things. But I think there is something to be said for the person that refuses to give up on themselves. And no matter how many times they failed, whether it's 100 times or 1000 times, just to keep yearning and reaching for more. I do think that, you know, You can't help the cards you're dealt in life, but what you can help is how you play them. Turning lemons into lemonade and just being stubborn and refusing to give up.
0: Something that I really struggle with in this conversation, and I think about this nightly as I process the events from the day, but then also plan for future episodes and plan my questions and everything. I think all the time about the connection between privilege and resilience and growth mindset. And you said, you know, you can't help the cards you're dealt, of course. Can you talk to me a little bit about your growth as a practitioner and as, a, as an individual when it comes to building those connections between growth and re- resilience? And, and how do you navigate that?
1: It's a wonderful question. To where I am right now, that starts years before I was even a nurse practitioner and even a nurse.
0: It's really, it's something that's very important for us to consider as people in the, I have a counseling background, although I don't currently directly use that in a clinical sense right now, but it's something that we always need to be thinking about. And I'm sure you do in your, in your work, given that the topic of the podcast is growth mindset, I recognize that I don't want to be just telling people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and move on because it's not as easy for some people. That's that's where that co- question comes from.
1: It's not as simple as pulling yourself up by your bootstraps because, I mean, personally for me, as a white woman, I recognize that I have more privilege than others. At the same time, I was born in Bristol, Connecticut, born into poverty. We needed assistance from the government at one point. There was a struggle and watching water come down from the ceiling and and my parents having to catch it in pots and pans was something as a young child I will never forget and seeing my parents be stressed over money whether or not the lights were going to be turned off those are things as a child that are so formative and there's a lot of it creates like a hunger and a drive at least for me to be more than my early beginnings but at the same time never wanting to forget where I came from. No matter the amount of success that I have attained, I don't want to forget where I came from. (laughs) It's actually funny that you mentioned that because there was an apartment specifically in Bristol that we lived in, and I hadn't been back there in like 20, 25 years. And after I graduated, there was a circumstance where I was in the area, and I just wanted to see where it was. And it's been knocked down, but it's an empty lot now. It looks so much smaller than when I was a kid. I couldn't believe that an apartment was even in that lot with a backyard. Just a lot of memories, good and bad, came back. And I actually brought a jar with me and just took some dirt. And I have that with me now in Colorado. And I cannot forget who I was and where I came from as a three-year-old living in that apartment. And There was definitely financial struggles, emotional struggles, and and I'm very open about this, but my father struggled with um, substance use disorder all of my life that I had known him, and it was a huge, huge reason why my parents split up when I was three, because he couldn't really get it together. Come to find out later in life, he had undiagnosed, untreated bipolar disorder. A lot of times people have bipolar disorder and it's not treated, it's not diagnosed, and they have those mood fluctuations that are so severe, it's very common for them to self-medicate. And so then it becomes like almost a dual diagnosis. Not only are you dealing with bipolar, but then you're having substance use disorder. And then there's trauma that comes along with that. So that was something I had to deal with a lot of my life up until he passed away when I was 21 from a drug overdose. And that was really difficult for me my sister my whole family but even before he passed you know there's all these different emotions that you feel when your parent is struggling with that disease in particular you're angry you're sad you're scared it's almost like these balances of the fear of what could happen if they don't get it together but then there's always that hope that they could finally get it you know and um they're in and out of rehab at certain points when I was a teenager and not speaking to him for certain years. And I do feel very fortunate that the last year and a half before he passed, we did reconnect and we did have a pretty nice relationship. And there are memories and conversations that we had in that last year and a half that were very healing for me and very important. And I will never forget when he did pass from his overdose that was so unexpected. I didn't know he was still struggling the way that he was struggling and it turned my whole life upside down. I was a senior in college in nursing school the fall semester. I was trying to really push on through and it really it caused a lot of emotional pain and distress. I'm pretty open with you about this, but like I have complex PTSD from all of that and the other things that I've been through in my life and and you've known me since I was a teenager. And so like when I was really young, like very outgoing and friendly. And and I remember after he passed in the months that followed, there was a very stark difference in my personality. I became much more to myself. It was hard for me to trust people. It was so difficult for me to let people in. Like I was beforehand so outgoing and... There was just this sudden realization after he passed that why would you want people to get close to you if they're going to leave? They're going to die. Like, this is so painful. There's this quote that always stuck with me. Grief is the price we pay for love. Wow. There's not a day that goes by I don't think of him. Um, and grief, grief takes years to work through. Um, and especially when you are mourning the loss of somebody that did pass from an overdose, there is there's such a stigma. And I think we're in I'm so grateful right now that, that things mental health is just a topic people are more open about. But like 10, 15 years ago it was still so taboo There was such this pressure to look and appear normal. At the time, I would not tell people how he passed. There was just like such a deep fear of that if I told people what he struggled with or how he passed that there would be this judgment on who he was as a person. There were such important things that he gave me and he taught me, and there was such good in him. Right. A lot of people don't understand that there's the person and then there's the addiction, and they are not the same thing. When you're struggling with addiction and substance use disorder, you do and you say things that they're hurtful, they're abusive, selfish behavior then they have moments of clarity when they are themselves and there is this great remorse and guilt and it just becomes like a snowball effect and it's like how do you stop that constant wheel of self-destruction
0: one of the key things that i've taken away from what you've told us so far is that there's nuance and complexity in this conversation and and this is a very layered conversation of course And it should be known also, Alyssa and I do know each other for quite some time, at least 10 years ago when we first were connected. And it's my hope that there are people listening who are processing similar situations in their own lives. To the people who might be going through something similar, whether it's the death of a loved one or somebody in their life who has substance use disorder, what would you say to that person to help them get through.
1: I've done like a lot of self-work on this topic. And like, as as I, w- I was saying, I was not open about this for a long time because there was this fear of judgment of who my father was. And the reason now that I am so open about it is because when you really own your own story and you share that with other people, you will find that as alone as you feel in whatever circumstances you're in whether you are a substance user yourself if you love somebody that has substance use mental health disorders if you're struggling with your own mental health I don't know one person that isn't touched by one or the other and because it's so taboo in some sense and there is a fear of judgment that's why I talk about it because it helps to break down the stigma to be like wow I just heard her tell this story and me too it takes the shame out of it You don't have to share what you're not comfortable sharing. You have to have discernment because it is so personal, so vulnerable. You have to learn discernment of who is eligible, able, and who deserves to know. Because there are people, unfortunately, that don't get it and maybe will never get it, but it is not your job to explain it to them. When you're going through something... You need people around you that are going to be loving and supportive.
0: That's it. Yeah. I'm wondering in what ways that prepares you to be a better clinician. I feel like I like
1: to offer a really
0: safe place for my patients to
1: express and explore that. And just to really just reassure them that I know how you're feeling right now really sucks, but you will not feel this way forever. And I can guarantee them that because I've been there myself. It's really helped me to just help them feel understood and seen. And no matter what type of medication I can prescribe them, whatever I diagnose them, it doesn't matter. What matters is that they have a space where they feel genuinely cared about and listened to.
0: One common theme among everything that you've said so far has been, one is is vulnerability. Two is the power of, Relationships, of course, that's the nature of your work. Talk to me a little bit about how relationships helped you overcome some of these challenges. How they helped you to become more resilient. Finding people
1: and friends and family that really show up for you when you're struggling and um, has been crucial for me. You know, I'm a very fiercely independent person, um, and learning to allow people in and to receive help and love and support was something that was really hard for me because that required vulnerability and trust. There are a few people in my life that I speak to almost on a daily basis, no matter what's going on in my life. And like, I know and can guarantee that, you know, no matter what I'm going through, they're going to show up for me. And just knowing that has been so crucial to me feeling more comfortable on my own skin, allowing myself to feel more comfortable with being vulnerable. And I can't tell you how much that's helped my own recovery and mental health to just know that I have that like undying loyalty and support from people that
0: genuinely love and care about me. We're very fortunate to have strong relationships. And there are people who don't feel like they have that and they feel might feel alone in this world or lonely. How do you help people who don't feel like they have those relationships to push forward? That's
1: a complex question because there's so many factors that go into connections. You know, um, I think a lot of times when we've been through trauma, and especially being children of people who have had any type of substance use, Um, codependency is kind of ingrained in us from a very young age and so learning the difference between codependency and connection is huge because codependency isn't healthy and so connection is a healthy relationship where there is like reciprocity equal give and take and a recognition of I'm my own person you're your own person, and we're here sharing this space because we want to, not because we have to. One of my best friends, she she has her own stuff going on in her own personal life. I do too, and, like, obviously I lean and support her and vice versa, but I'm not responsible for her well-being. She is, and she is not responsible for my well-being. I am, and so a lot of times when we feel alone in this world – and there's nobody around us, I encourage people to ask themselves, are you in love with yourself? I had somebody ask me that once, and that stopped me dead in my tracks. Like, are you in love with yourself? You know, we, we're in a world where people are like, oh, you should love yourself. Loving yourself and being in love with yourself are two different things. And I think when you can get to a place where you're learning to love yourself, And learning to be in love with yourself, you don't need other people. Like, obviously, we need and we want connections, right? But you become more authentic. You're not looking for other people to fill you up because you're already filling yourself up. So there's this – a key component to having, like, a healthy connection is having a healthy, loving connection with yourself first and foremost.
0: What can someone do if they're looking to fall in love with themselves? I mean, how, how, where does someone start? What's the difference? I can
1: only speak from my personal experience, obviously, and I and I don't think that there's like a cookie cutter answer. I think it depends on the person. Therapy has been huge for me. So, complex PTSD, I've done neurofeedback, I've done EMDR therapy. Those are very trauma-focused types of therapy has been life-changing for me. And Therapy has also allowed me to have a lot of introspection and um, really a vulnerability and understanding and trust of myself because when we go through trauma and we've been traumatized by other people, we feel disconnected from ourselves in so many different ways and you almost feel like you can't even trust yourself. Um, And so learning to trust yourself, forgive yourself, and that's been a huge thing for me because I've been in situations and relationships where I accepted less than I deserved. I said and did things I wish I never did. Um, but once you say and do things and you harm yourself in whatever way, whether it's staying in a relationship, engaging in self destruction, self destructive behaviors, yes, you can point and blame the fingers all you want at other people. But I found that when I'm doing that to other people, what I really need to do is forgive myself. And that is hard. And that takes time. It takes time. It takes therapy, supportive people who really do see the best in you and know that you are not your mistakes. You're more than your mistakes and they're not going to crucify you and hold it over your head for the rest of your life. That's what's helped me. And there was a time in my life I couldn't look myself in the mirror and say, I love you. It would make me cry because I was so ashamed of who I was and what I did, what I put myself through. And I can honestly say today I have no problem looking in the mirror and saying, I love you.
0: Being okay with who you are in the moment, understanding that you just said you're on a journey, getting help when you need it, and forgiving yourself. Yes yeah easier said than done but now that you've gone you're going through that process and you're you're farther than you were 10 years ago on it and and this concept of growth mindset is is that we are capable of change and it stemmed from you know our brains are capable of learning new things yes but also I think that applies to our emotional core as well, not just our cognitive abilities. And that's part of why this conversation is so rich. Everyone's experience with that is different. One thing also that I I hope to carry throughout this series is that hard is hard. I interview lots of people from lots of different walks of life, lots of different challenges, and no one person's challenge is greater or lesser than any others. You know, Alyssa, some of the things that you talk about, we've talked about so far, this is heavy stuff. This is heavy stuff. And it's hard. And in my work with students, I see it. Everybody brings something to the table. How they were raised, what their current circumstances are. And I'm, I'm you talk about mental health being more in the forefront today than it was in the past. And I am so thankful for that. I remember when I was growing up, I went to weekly therapy for a little while and I didn't tell anybody. Uh, And now I'm in the counseling field. I mean, I look back. That's been part of my development too. I look back and like, it was a good thing for me. Although at the time I didn't like it. I
1: didn't want to go into psych nursing when I was in nursing school. I didn't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole because of the things that I had experienced with my father. All I wanted to do was be an ICU nurse because I thought that would be so badass. I was going to help people. I was going to change the world. Like you have all these like expectations as a nursing student. And don't get me wrong, being a critical care nurse was one of the most badass jobs I've ever had in my life. But what I found very quickly is that, yes, you're helping people. But what we're really doing is putting Band-Aids on bullet wounds. There's so many patients I saw that I was like, you know what, we're gonna get them better and then four weeks later they're back. And I'm like, What? Why? And it's because so many and people don't understand this. So many health issues we have stem from unresolved childhood. Because there's like this whole cascade, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of ACEs, so it's like adverse childhood events. And depending on the amount that you've had, there's actually research that has shown that it because of like, you know, cortisol stress is released with trauma, especially unresolved trauma over years, the cortisol levels that are so high can cause heart disease, it can cause cancer, it can cause obesity, um, it can cause further health mental health issues in addition to PTSD and so then you're transferring that to your children and the people around you and it's just like this whole snowball of things and what I found is that there were not enough resources in the community for mental health issues and I recognized that and it was like kind of dumbfounded me and there was actually one patient in particular where like things with my father and my career kind of came full circle I was a newer ICU nurse, and there was this young gentleman who struggled with mental health issues, substance use issues, and two weeks to coming to me in the ICU, he had an overdose, and he lived. And he had this moment of clarity where he recognized that if I don't get clean right now, I'm going to die, and I don't want to die. And what this young man did was – his grandmother drove him all over the state of Connecticut trying to find a place that would take him and they would make him jump through hoops. They're like, well, your urine's clean. And he's like, because I'm trying not to use heroin. Like, I'm not trying to. And like another place was like, oh, we have a bed for you. And then he, in the intake, he was like admitted he had some other issue. Um, I don't want to give away like HIPAA stuff. Some other mental health. Issue. And they were like, oh, well, you're too much of a liability. And denied him a bed. And then what happened is that he used again. He overdosed. Nobody found him for 30 minutes. They did CPR and resuscitated him, but he had an anoxic brain injury, which translates to being brain dead. So he was, he was clinically dead and the machines and the medications were the only thing keeping him alive. And I was still working through a lot of stuff with my father, um, and I think in some ways try to push through it and ignore it in some ways. And I couldn't because I had to sit with his mother, his mother's only child, by the way, his mother and his grandmother, and have that doctor tell them that their loved one was dead. I, I knew how she felt. I knew how she felt because I will never forget that phone conversation when someone told me that my father passed because it's like you have this hope, like I said earlier, that they get better, that there's hope that they can get through this. And when somebody passes from an overdose, no, no, only are you grieving that person's life, but like you, that's it. There's no more hope. They're not going to get better. They succumb to the worst fear that you had for them i can't tell you how deeply that affected me and i was able to i think be there for her in a way that i normally wouldn't have and then like there was morning rounds um before we went on the floor and we're just going through like the patients just be like hey look out for this this and that and this particular patient came up And again, this is when I wasn't open about what happened to my own father. And this one nurse had the gall to just say so nonchalantly in front of everyone in the room, who lets their son use heroin? What kind of mother lets their son use heroin? I was new to this job. I bit the inside of my lip so hard, I bruised it because I was so furious in this moment. Like, how nice is it to have that ignorance? Like, you have no idea. What it's like to love somebody, like nobody lets their son do here, and not, and regardless, he was an adult. (laughs) Like, how could you even? It just, it just, that was an anger I can't even describe. You could probably feel the heat coming off of me. I was so angry. That was the turning point for me, where I was like, yes, I love being a critical care nurse, but I'm
0: meant to do more. I need to go into psych. Wow. I'm still processing that story. It, I mean, to, to be sitting in that room as you're still processing your own stuff, <laughs> then trying to help somebody else process. There's a great compartmentalization, I think, that probably was happening. At the same time, I imagine a wave of realization, it sounds like, of like, this is not okay. And I can help. And so you've effectively turned these tough experiences of yours and this challenge into a catalyst to try to help other people. With me sharing, it's never to gain sympathy
1: or whatever. It's because these things happen to so many people, Reese. Trauma happens to so many people. And my hope, with sharing my personal experiences is that somebody listening feels seen, feels heard and can resonate with the emotions that I'm conveying in the stories and just know that like, they're not alone. There are other people that have been through stuff and like, you're not weird. This is like the other thing I tell my patients. I'm like, listen, I don't care about a diagnosis. I have to diagnose you because of billing purposes but if I didn't have to, I wouldn't. There's
0: nothing wrong with you. It's, it's such a simple thought, but it's also really powerful because a lot of us spend our whole lives thinking that we're different or weird or we carry the burden for things that have happened to us. So I thank you for that. Alyssa Nadalny, I really appreciate you being here today. I'm thankful this isn't a video podcast because I've I've been tearing up and crying over here on my end you don't need external validation by any means, but I'm just so proud of who you are and you are just a badass, as you say. And so thank you so much for agreeing to be here with me.
1: I really appreciate those kind words because, you know, I'm really proud of me too. And I think that's the most important thing is like, I, I'm proud of me. Thank you for letting me be a part of this conversation. I feel truly honored.
0: For more information on growth mindset, go ahead and visit me on Instagram at The New Smart Blog. Dr. Alyssa Nadalny, thanks so much for being here.